Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Secondary school teachers hit the bricks today for a one-day strike as the union and Ontario government failed to reach a deal. Ontario's Auditor General report comes out today. What can we expect? Well, we'll talk about that too. And even more details of Sewergate cover-up have come out. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The issue that uh, is on everybody's minds here in the Hamilton area and uh, right across the province right now is uh, secondary school teachers uh, have hit the bricks today. The picket lines, uh, well, we have one right across the road from us here in the uh, CHML radio center here at, uh, at Longwood and, uh, and Maine uh, with uh, the Westdale Secondary School right across the road from us. So how is the board handling this? First of all, I want to bring Alex Johnstone into the conversation. She, of course, is the uh, chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth uh, District School Board. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Glad you could be here today. Good morning, Bill. You knew this was going to happen. They gave you a, 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 some notice on this as well. So what has the board done now in preparation for what happens and what is happening today? Well, Bill, we found out last night that uh, that the province was unable to reach a deal with our Ontario secondary teachers. As a result, um, all of the secondary schools across Ontario closed today. With that, here in Hamilton, that impacts 13 of our high schools, which are closed to today and impacts 1,400 students. No extracurricular activities are being offered. Uh, we do want to note that all of our elementary schools are open. All of our child care centers, including the ones at secondary sites, remain open. And community youth of schools, so our rentals of our schools at our secondary sites and elementary sites, continue as was previously planned. So, I mean, technically, I guess the schools are open, just that there's, not, there's no teaching going to be happening today. That is right. So individuals who were not part of uh, this employee, uh, the secondary teachers employee group, they have been redispatched over to our elementary schools. So uh, principals and vice principals have been redirected to elementary schools to uh, provide assistance in those buildings as well as EAs. And uh, so with that, uh, those individuals have been redeployed. So what's, what's the plan going forward now, Alex? I mean, this, as we were told, and we, uh, you know, uh, Harvey Bischoff was on the program yesterday and explained this was going to be a one-day situation. And, and of course, yesterday or at this time, uh, we weren't even sure this was going to happen because there was still the possibility of some sort of a settlement. That never happened. But now we're hearing that this might be a series of, of, of job actions. Uh, and the next one may well be next week. December 9th is what I'm hearing. I guess a week uh, this coming Monday may be the next one. Does, does the board anticipate that this is going to be a continuation? Well, Bill, I think what's important to highlight is that this is about much more than a one-day protest. At the heart of all of the negotiations is increases to class sizes. Originally, uh, the, the previous uh, Minister of Education had announced an increase to 28% class size average. And just to put that into perspective, our class size average last year was 21 um, so with that, our board began working towards the increases. We expressed enormous concern. We increased our class sizes by 1% last year, uh, so being implemented for this September, and that resulted in 173 classes being closed. Uh, we are extremely concerned about increased wait lists. We are extremely concerned about 
our ability to offer science level, or sorry, college level science and maths in all of our high schools. We're also very concerned about our French immersion programming. Um, and that's just at the very beginning of increasing class sizes by 1%. Now, the ministry has announced that they are now looking to negotiate 23% class size uh, average, but again, we are very concerned about the current pressures with just having one percent increase. And what I want to really highlight uh, for parents is that we are encouraging you to find out what's at stake, to become informed, and if you are concerned, please do speak out with, for whichever your opinion is. Um, with this, it is going to be the new reality going forward. We know that when cuts and changes are made to education, rarely, if ever, are those reversed. So whatever goes forward from uh, the settlement that comes through, that will be the new reality. So is it fair to say then, Alex, that if you are not supportive, you are at least sympathetic to to the teachers' uh, concerns here? We're concerned about the students. As, uh, as Board of Trustees, we have been very vocal around the need to preserve class sizes. Our attitude is that if it's not broken, don't fix it. All right. Uh, and, and again, we'll see what's going to happen going forward, and we'll be in touch with uh, some of the folks from the, the Teachers Association. Of course, now, as a board, uh, the greater concern that you've got is another point that we brought up here yesterday. Uh, these are the secondary school teachers uh, that, that are doing the one-day walkout. Uh, your elementary school teachers are going down that road as well. They're not that far down, of course, I mean, as vis-a-vis work action and things of this nature. But uh, this has the potential to snowball and become a, a much bigger problem. Well, we were able to, provincially, an agreement was reached with QP last month, um, so there there is a pathway forward. Uh, we are hopeful that, um, that there can be an agreement reached at all levels. Uh, there always is one eventually reached. Uh, locally, we continue to have uh, local negotiations with our each of these employee groups, and those negotiations are going quite well. Uh, they, are, they are very respectful. Alex, we'll be uh, tracing this and tracking this as it uh, it develops over the next couple of days. A busy day for you. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Thank you, Bill. Alex Johnson, of course, who is the uh, chair of the Hamilton Board of Education. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, this is uh, going to be an uncomfortable day at Queen's Park for the Ford government. Uh, This is the uh, the day that uh, Ontario's Auditor General will release her annual report uh, under a number of different topics. Now, uh, we anticipate, by the way, that we'll have uh, Bonnie Lizick on the show probably tomorrow morning uh, to give us uh, an outline as to exactly what her and her staff have discovered about how this uh, provincial government is spending our money. Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, who's covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years, has gone through an awful lot of these auditors' reports over the years. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about what we might expect. Uh, Badger, thanks for the time. Uh, is there uh, some consternation and a little bit of hand-wringing going on in the Premier's office this morning? Oh, I would. Uh, well, there's hand-wringing there, and there's uh, smiles on the faces of reporters at Queen's Park. Uh, this annual uh, report, I, I would liken it's like Christmas morning for reporters at Queen's Park. <laughs> Each chapter is like opening up a new present because it there's always something that's buried in those reports. Some of them are you know are you know pretty lackluster, but she Brian uh, has a pretty you know she does a pretty good job on these reports and they're usually pretty interesting. But the one to look at will be how you know. 
how she looks at the uh, government's plan to reduce uh, greenhouse gases, and in particular, what is you know it's likely whether they can achieve their target. That's going to be the interesting one. And this is all. I remember this this report is owned now by the by the uh, progressive conservatives. It's not anything I would think to do with the uh, former liberal government. Yeah, but you know that's going to come up in the conversation anyway. You know, in all the years you've covered these, has an auditor general ever come out and said, you know what, everything's fine. These guys are doing a great job. That that, that just doesn't happen. Well, if they did, I, I, I was wondering whether they were doing their job or not. Oh, well, exactly. But, but you know that, and again, every government that, that gets chastised by the auditor general simply says, well, look at the mess the other government left us. Yeah, uh, they do. When it, it, they find it hard to do that when they're in the you know in the midst of their uh, their own years. But I would just to get back just to roll back the uh, time here when the liberals attacked Bonnie Lissy because they didn't like her report. I thought that was the dumbest move ever by a government. And uh, if the this if the progressive conservatives are smart. They'll take their licks and say, you know, we'll take the, you know, the Auditor General's report under advisement and make changes where necessary. Boom, done. But no, you're right. I mean, the the, the consternation there, and it was uh, the finance minister and the premier at the time that that, that basically uh, tried to to make her the bad guy in this situation because they didn't agree with her bookkeeping because she didn't agree with their bookkeeping about uh, you know trying to what they thought couch the deficit numbers by by using pension money involved in this. Uh, and the conservatives, the, of course, the PCs at the time, and I remember you and I had this conversation, uh, chastised the government for their bookkeeping and said, no, the auditor general's right. Of course, then they won the election a couple of months after that and said, well, no, she's not really right. We kind of like that math, and we're going to do that, too. Yeah, yeah, they, they certainly, oh, I imagine that they did a flip-flop. How unusual in Queen's Park. <laughs> yeah, so that, that to me, is one, uh, certainly the uh, listeners will want to, to look at. But there's other things, too, that she's going to be looking at that I think were not maybe equally interesting, but certainly are interesting. And, you know, let's look at the justice system, including jails, detention centers, criminal courts, and the office of the uh, chief coroner. And that, that's something that's going to have an impact here in the Hamilton area. I mean, we've already had one inquest about the, the unusually high number of deaths that have occurred in the Barton Street Detention Center over the last little while, and that those numbers are continuing to rise. Uh, and obviously, at some point, the, the provincial ministry has to take uh, some sort of accountability for this and say, what's going on here? I can't tell you the number of times, Bill, that the jails have been raised in, in these annual reports. You know, it's over, you know, I, I'm of two minds, you know, if you don't like jail, don't go there. But on the other hand, it, it's, it's abysmal conditions in many of the jails. Even the new ones they built are now now overcrowded like the old ones used to be. And it's it's not, it's not the kind of conditions that you would expect humans to, you know, be, to live in or, and, you know, to be treated that way. That's something they're going to be looking at for sure is overcrowding. And the Barton Street Jail, I wouldn't be surprised if that comes up with the number of deaths that have happened there. Well, exactly, and we've heard stories uh, from families of some of the the people that have been in that uh, institution 
Uh, you're right. I mean, you've got jail cells there that were built for two people, and you've got sometimes four or five people in there. And so you got people sleeping on the floor, leaning against the wall. Uh, and to suggest it's inhumane, I guess, you know, some people may not be comfortable with that. But the, the fact is, is an awful lot of these people, and even some of the deaths that have occurred here uh, through overdose and a number of other things, are people that were never actually convicted of anything. They're there waiting trial, uh, but they're still in that institution. And so there's there's an awful lot wrong with the, the, the penal system in this province right now. Uh, and nobody seems to want to talk about it, but I'm pretty sure Ms. Lissick's going to talk about it today. Well, you know, I, she will, and I think she'll address the, you know, the kind of concerns that, uh, you know, have been raised in the past. But generally, the public doesn't care. And, that, and that's why they get away with those, you know, having people live in those kind of conditions, because the public, you know, that got other interests, and they figure, well, you know, if you're going to jail, well, suck it up. But th- this is, this isn't, this is a, abysmal treatment of, uh, you know, of, you know, I've got to remember, and, and I often forget this myself, is that most of the people in jail have never been convicted of anything mm-hmm. in the provincial system. They're just in a holding pattern, waiting to, you know, to have their, their matter dealt with. Which, by the way, bleeds into another problem that, uh, that we've talked about with legal experts over the last little while. Uh, and that's, of course, uh, the, the, the system itself, the judicial system and the legal system. Uh, we don't have enough judges, which means people are staying in the institutions like Barton Street Jail and other places right across the province, awaiting trial. Sometimes uh, some people that probably do uh, deserve a trial and probably in some cases even deserve some sort of a conviction at the end of that trial are simply released because the judge finally gets it in front of them and says, well, this is taking too long. So, I mean, we've got an awful lot wrong here with overcrowding, with, with a, a backlog, and, and the government doesn't seem to want to move on this. Uh, and I got the feeling that you know, once this report comes out, Badger, these guys are going to have to stand up and answer to some of this stuff. I mean, because the idea of blaming the other guys and blaming the wind government for this is starting to wear a little thin. I mean, you've been in government more than a year. Uh, this is your ballgame, and you've got to be accountable for it. Well, yeah, the, the campaign's over. <laughs> and, well, you know, I, one thing that um, he, the courts know the kind of conditions that are in our provincial jails because they give them extra they, uh, time for time served. Let's say they're, they're convicted of something, they go on to federal, uh, federal time. They're given extra time because they serve so much, so much time in a provincial jail. So the the courts know what kind of system you know how bad the system is, but the government doesn't doesn't seem to uh, I don't I won't say they don't care but they don't seem and they never have I mean I go I go back covering these back in the seventies they never really have been able to get a handle on how to run the jails and and keep you know keep it to the point where people are being treated you know as in halfway decent. Well, it's not a priority, and it hasn't been a priority for any government for years and years and years. This isn't just just on the Ford government. This goes back, as you say, probably generations, uh, because oh, it's it's absolutely. only a small percentage of the population, and and as you say, the other percent of the population, the larger percent, uh, don't pay much attention to this. Uh, one, I guess, of interest because my my mom was in a, in a long term care was uh, she's going to look at uh, food and nutrition in long term care homes, and. There are very good long-term care homes, and there are some very bad long-term care homes. 
and the the food that is offered up to by those bad ones you wouldn't feed to a dog and i'm sure that she will she will spell that out pretty clearly i would suspect in that report well, especially because, as you say, uh, with aging populations and with the, the intention, anyway, of trying to improve the health care system, there's going to be more focus on long-term care facilities. But we don't have enough of them, first of all. Uh, they're way too costly. What was that story the Star did about a year or so ago that it cost like 5000 bucks a month, I think, for some of the in the GTA? And it's not much better here in the Hamilton area. Oh, no, it's, it's huge, a huge amount of money. And, well, we don't, and, the, and not only is it a huge amount of money, you spend a huge amount of time waiting to get accepted at one yeah. of these homes because there are so few. In your years of covering this stuff, though, Badger, uh, when this comes out, and, and as you say, there's some pretty contentious stuff here that she's going to address, has any government actually said, you know, you're right, we're going to do something about that, or do they just try to be dismissive of the whole thing? Well, they... They nod their heads and say, often if they'll say, "Oh yes, we we take we take the recommendations uh, outlined in the Auditor General's report very seriously," and you never hear of it again. It, but that's not to say things aren't done in the background. But you know, I I just can't. There's I'm trying to think of one thing I, I can remember. Over the years, that was what was brought up. It was very contentious, and that it was either fixed right away or fixed at all. I mean, th- this is going to supply talking points for the opposition. We know that. I mean, it's, this is going to get brought up. I mean, you know, Andrew Horvath and the NDP, who are the official opposition, of course, at Queens Park, uh, are, are just going to copy this off and send it to their members and said, "Here, here, here are your questions for the next three months at, you know, with the legislature." Uh, you know, because they're going to they're harp on this, but at the same time, the government's simply going to be defending their position. And the first issue that you brought up here is probably the one that's going to get the most attention, and that's, of course, uh, what the government is doing about greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, oh, and, and it goes back to the fact that, you know, they, they killed the cap-and-trade program almost, the, you know, a minute after they got sworn in as a government and said they had a better plan. Well, I guess we'll find out today if it's better or not. Well, I always wonder if they, in their heart of hearts, whether they you know, think that they made the wrong decision by doing that. It was a moneymaker. And now they're scrambling to come up with some kind of plan. And from what I read, it, boy, it doesn't, you know, I mean, it's got a lot of work, let's put it that way. And I, would be not, I wouldn't be surprised at all if she determines that there's no way that their plan is going to achieve their targets. Well, you mentioned the money, obviously, so cap-and-trade was a generator for the uh, the provincial government of that time, and that money is gone now, and we all know the implications that had. But the other element to this, too, is is there's still a, a pending lawsuit. I know that one court has actually slapped down the, the suit that uh, the, the Ontario government and other governments are taking against the uh, the Trudeau government about uh, you know the, the gas uh, program that's gone, here, greenhouse gas that they've put in place here. Yeah. Uh, but if the if the auditor general comes out today and says, you know what, this, what the province here is doing is bogus. It's it's not doing anything. Does that hurt their chances that if this does go to the Supreme Court, which it seems likely is going to happen? Well, it's certainly not going to help it. I mean, that that's for sure. I mean, if if it goes to the Supreme Court, you know, the big question is that will be laid right out there. What is your plan? And. Will it be, you know, the plan you have, will it be achievable? And if they've got, you know, the lawyers, uh, you know, uh, fighting the government's decision, will have this in their back pocket and say, 
well, look what the governor, what the auditor general said about this. And I mean, I, again, I'm not, uh, I won't be surprised at all if she, if she just says, you know, this, it's not, it's not going to wash. It's it's going to be a very important part of this because it seems to be one of the linchpins that this government is has, has leaned on right now. That is that they have a better idea, they have a better solution uh, that's going to achieve these targets, and at the same time, to use uh, the premier's uh, phrase, put more money in our jeans, in our pockets. Uh, obviously, I think that's probably the the, the 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 approach that Ms. Lissick and her staff are going to take here to say is that true or not. Uh, and I got to anticipate. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking right now that that's that's it's probably going to be bad news for the government when she starts talking about this. There, Bill, there's one one thing here. I, I if I was in the horse racing industry in in Ontario, I'd be a little concerned about because they you know the government cut back quite a bit on the amount of money that they were giving the horse racing industry. Yeah. And I see that she's going to be looking at the provincial support for the horse racing industry. Now, that could go either way. She could say, you know, you know, why are we supporting this industry at all? Or she, she um, and I'm kind of thinking that might be the case. I, I can't imagine she's going to come out and say, you know, we've got to give the horse racing industry more money. So if if I was in that business, I would certainly be interested to hear, to hear what she has to say about that. But you were in the press gallery when the McGiddy government reacted to that. Remember, they did propose some changes to it, and there was such a pushback from the industry, and, and we saw that here with Flamborough Downs and, and down Niagara Way as well, that the government actually backed off of that and, and put more money into the system. And, and obviously, if a, a government like the Ford government is looking for quote-unquote efficiencies, you got to wonder if they're going to be started to look in something like that, and and they actually might take what the uh, the auditor general here says to, at heart and simply say, "Look at guys, the you know the game's over." Well, but see, I, I know there's a big fuss at the at the time, but they the liberal government did end up taking money away from the industry. Oh yeah, 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 and uh, they would, uh, you know, and I there you know they didn't like it, so I don't know, you know, again there's. There's a whole bunch of uh, things in this report that are going to be pretty, uh, pretty fascinating and newsworthy. So it'll be interesting to. I, I mean, if I was, if I was a betting man, which I'm not because I'm senior, and have no money. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I would say that the lead story is going to be the, uh, the green their plan for greenhouse gas reduction. Well, that'll, simply because it's, be it has an impact on each and every one of us. Uh, yes, you're you're right. I mean, I, I still think there there should be some, and there will be, I'm sure, some discussion about the penal system and what's going on in jails and what's going on in the courts. Uh, but again, that impacts only a, sh- a small number of people. But this is the one. I think you're right. This is going to be the lead. This is the one I think she's really going to spend a fair bit of time on. And it's the one I think that the government's really a, a little apprehensive about because they're oh. going to be back on the heels about this. Oh, they will be. But again, if, they, if they're you know, if they're smart, they'll just take their licks and carry on. I, I hope you know. I hope they don't repeat the, what the liberals did, and that was to you know to vilify her. I mean, it was just it was made no sense at all. Well, uh, she's uh, they say around noontime, around midday today is when she's going to make her presentation in Toronto at Queen's Park, and we'll uh, watch with great anticipation to see just what she's going to do. And you're right. I mean, the other side of this is how's the government going to respond to this. Uh, the finance minister at the time, Mr. Souza, under the Wynn government, uh, got his back up about this, and you're right. I mean, he ended up with egg on his face as a result of this. We'll just see uh, how the Ford government is going to respond to this, too. I mean, if they just take their lumps for a day or two, 
uh, I guess they're looking at the calendar themselves, too, and saying, look, at the Christmas break is coming up pretty soon, so we can ride this out for a couple of days, and people will Absolutely. forget about it over the holidays. For sure. Yeah. Uh, Badger, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again. Okay, Bill, take it easy. Okay, well, Richard Brennan, of course, who covered Queen's Park for many, many years uh, with the Auditor General's report. And as I say, we are, have already uh, put some calls out to the Auditor General to get her on the program to explain her report in greater detail in the, uh, the days ahead. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Speaking of political scandals, uh, <laughs> the uh, municipal election that was held in uh, 2018 uh, of course, returned most of the people that were on city council. That tends to happen with municipal elections. There have been a couple of new faces. But uh, now we find out that that council, that previous council, uh, actually withheld information about what we now call Sewergate. Uh, some suggest it was to try to enhance their, their possibility of getting reelected, uh, which probably would not be the first time something like that would have occurred. But it just seems to add fuel to the fire and, and the controversy that seems to be swirling around uh, Sewergate. Joining us to talk about this is John Best, who is, the, of course, the publisher of the Bay Observer. Uh, John, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Yeah, happy to be with you, Bill. John, right off the bat, let me ask you something. When we found out about this a couple of weeks ago now, that being Sewergate, uh, the, the question I think you and I talked about for a, a period of time, is this a story that's going to have legs, or is this going to be outrage for a couple of days, and, and then we're going to forget about it? Uh, what's your read on, on the reaction that seems to still be going pretty strongly, as far as I can see, on, on social media? It has gone on, to be honest, longer than I thought it would, Bill. Uh, we're now into, I guess, really, you could say the third week. We've certainly had two weekends intervene, and that's normally when things die down. But here we are, well into December now, and uh, I noticed today there were still letters to the editor, although not quite the volume that we've seen in the last in the last week. And, uh, and not the, the vitri- not the same, a little less vitriol than we saw in the first couple of days, too. Yeah, well, and, you know, you had a guest on your show yesterday that I think uh, provided some context uh, in, in the overall situation, although it still doesn't speak to the failure of council to take the public into its confidence, not only the public, but, but other key stakeholders uh, that, that we're supposedly working with on clean water. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think the public now is, is angry. Uh, they've certainly demonstrated that, and as a matter of fact, uh, from a political standpoint, this doesn't justify uh, keeping a lid on it in 2018, but it's pretty obvious that if this thing had exploded in the summer of 2018, we would have seen changes on council based, you know, based on the, the response we've seen from the public. But you know and as well as I do that 2022 is a long way away, temper's cool. That's why... Uh, um, in my editorial, actually, we're, we're going to press with our December edition this week. I'm saying that if you're really that angry, if you're really that upset, and almost every letter talked about changing council, then it's up to you to start organizing right now. Because if people think they can pop up after Labor Day on uh, in 2022, you're wasting your time and your money. Uh, we have an entrenched council in most cases, and it's going to take neighborhood organization, what I would call hand-to-hand combat, in this case, door-to-door combat. And if you don't have, if, if between now and September of 2022, if you don't have your hands on roughly $20,000, maybe a little more, and if you don't have 15 or 20 people that are willing to go out there every day and knock on doors, 
uh, you're probably wasting your effort to think about running. When we had that discussion yesterday, and I wanted to get your read on this, John, uh, the essence of, of of the debate, I think, is now boiled down to it's not so much that this happened, this this overflow happened over a period of four years. I mean, that's egregious enough. I, I, we get that. But it's the fact that council was not forthright about this to the public. And I think, uh, you know, when you betray that trust, uh, that's, I think, why the anger is, is, is probably still lingering and in some cases still festering. Well, certainly that's the case. I mean, let's face it, it uh, I think someone, you or one of your guests summed it up yesterday, uh, a light that should have been red was green, and that's how it all happened. But I think it's uh, just a bogus argument to suggest that uh, the reason it had to be kept quiet was because it would enhance uh, the, the amount of a fine or a penalty that might be imposed by the Ministry of the Environment. The most important thing was to alert people to that issue, to keep them from uh, treating uh, particularly Coots Paradise as if it was a normal waterway, safe for boating and kayaking and all those other things. I mean, that was an egregious uh, lapse to to not warn the public about that. And you know, dogs, uh, people's pets splashing around in there, maybe drinking some of the water. There, you know, th- that information needed to be released as soon as it was available. I, I look out the back window of the radio station here at Maine and Longwood, and uh, of course we can look out under the 403, and, and the, the, the Shido Creek, of course, runs right beside that. And, and you yeah. got to wonder, over a four-year How did period... How you pronounce that? <laughs> oh, Shido Creek, okay, yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As opposed to the, uh, okay, yeah. uh, the other, because we've seen that that one used as well. But, you know, yeah. the, what was going through there over a period of years, I mean, it's it's mind-boggling to think that the council said, look, that's just not talk about this and maybe nobody will notice. Because there were complaints over that period of time. I mean, people did complain to city council, to the city, to uh, to the to the environment ministry as well. And and there seemed to be little to no action on this. I mean, this is, this is really a, a debacle about loose ends that just ne- were never followed up on. It certainly is, and, uh, you know, that's why, uh, you know, the, the the whole process, I think, needs to be revisited. We're looking at, uh, you know, a pretty serious problem here that, that was swept under the rug, and a lot of it, as far as I'm concerned, has to do with the kind of governance we've had at City Hall for many, many years. It's, uh, you know, I call it a two-tier council where there's an inner core that kind of know what's going on, and uh, the rest of them are really, in some cases, left in the dark much longer than they should be. Uh, and a perfect example of that is uh, what happened. I mean, we, we had, you know, it was August of 2018. The, the situation was well known to the Council of the Day, which represents 75% of uh, where we are now. And, uh, you know, nothing, nothing was done. And these, for these people to say, as they did today in the paper, that it had nothing to do with the election, well, we know that in the fall of 2018, on a much lesser issue, uh, Michael Andlauer was urged by the mayor not to raise the arena in Lime Ridge Mall issue because uh, that might become an election issue. And that, that's a far more innocuous issue than, than what we're dealing with with the spill. Well, and therein lies the problem, and and that's the question I've received from an awful lot of listeners since this story came to light, John, is, uh, first of all, we know that they tried to suppress Mr. Andalar's uh, ideas about Lime Ridge Mall. Uh, we know now that they suppressed this this whole situation about Sewergate. What else did they keep on us? I mean, what else is, is in somebody's bottom drawer here that they don't want us to see? Well, it reduces trust. There's yeah. no question about it. 
you know, it's it, the, the knee jerk. I mean, you can say that we were acting on advice of lawyers, or were you hiding behind lawyers? And and there's always that fine line between which are you doing. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's very difficult to tell the difference. I mean, there's no question based on what we've seen that there would have been probably some changes at City Hall had this thing come out in 2018. It's hard to believe some of these council veterans wouldn't have been sensitive to that. Well, and I've talked to a couple of lawyers, I'm sure you have over the last couple of days, and and, uh, I understand that you can talk to five lawyers and probably get five different versions or opinions on on whatever the matter is that you're discussing with them. But I've yet to talk to anybody that says, yeah, you know what, they were right to get that sort of advice. I mean, they they say they were opening themselves up to some sort of legal action. That still exists. Nothing changes. I mean, now that the story's out there, people that want to take legal action or are inclined to do that are still going to do it. So I I don't understand why they got that advice. And if they're going to start releasing documents, documents, I'd like to see that legal opinion. Well, uh, I think it was just off-the-cuff advice, and let's face it, we all know that, uh, you know, legal, why would they go out on a limb? The easiest advice to give is the most cautious. But uh, counsel, you know, they have to have enough sense to sometimes override even legal advice. Legal advice is not God. You know, I always say, Lawyers give advice; they don't give orders. And and uh, we can cite a number of examples where counsel has ignored legal advice that they've received on some issues, uh, and gone ahead and done what they wanted to do anyway. So I mean, all, why all of a sudden did they decide that okay, this is good advice, and we're going to follow this? Well, we don't know. Uh, what we do know is that uh, the public have seized on this issue like nothing before, and uh, we're going to see what happens. But. As I said, you know, anger cools, and uh, 2022 is three years away. Well, and there, and that's why we have to keep things in context here, because I mean, because I've, I've tried to respond to a number of people that have contacted me over the last couple of weeks about this, and, and you've seen some of these things, you know, that so-and-so should resign, or, you know, the province should step in and negate the results of the election. None of that's going to happen. Uh, that that's you know you might want to see that happen, but the reality is is nobody's going to step down be, as a result of this, and and the province is not going to step in. Uh, the, the Ministry of Environment might have something to say to City Council and to City staff about the way they've handled this, but but nobody's going to lose their job on this, at least on the, the elected side of things right now. Uh, and the only recourse you have right now is, as you say, the next election, which is two and a half years away. Yeah, it's going to be a long time, but I I think though whether it has an electoral effect uh, that you can, you know, draw a straight line to <clears throat> or not, it's tarnished uh, council's image, uh, I think, permanently, this council. So, you know, the, the, there's certainly going to be, a, if people vote, it's going to be hold your nose and vote. But uh, there's a lot of activism in this city. It'll be interesting to see if they really know how to organize themselves. Well, I mean, we thought we had a, a, a ballot box issue with LRT that turned out not to be much of a ballot box issue, I guess, in, in the mayoral race anyway. Um, and, and we anticipate well, that was going to happen. or 52,000 people uh, expressed their opinion. So it's, you know, that's that's a big number. And, and the issue was strong enough that, uh, what, three or four sitting council members actually came out in favor of the opponent. When's the last time you've seen that in a municipal election for mayor? Well, yeah, it was uh, it was not a close race, but I mean, the fact of the matter is, is obviously uh, Vito Scro, who was the uh, the main challenger, of course, to, to Fred Eisenberger, 
uh, in his re-election bid, uh, did get a significant number of votes. And so those, uh, we anticipate, were probably because of that one issue. But I, uh, and I'm not suggesting this this should die. I mean, people are outraged, fine. Uh, they've got every reason to be outraged by this. But I just don't see this hanging around as, as something that people are going to try to hang around the necks of, of incumbent councillors that are going to be seeking re-election in 2022. Well, and the other thing, Bill, is uh, it is three years away, and that's three years where there's plenty of time for other screw-ups. So <laughs> let's see what happens. Well, we just talked about LRT, and something's going to happen, either you know, pro or con with that, you would think, before the next election. we can't The status quo, where we are right now, uh, can't be maintained. They're either going to start digging that thing, or they're going to say, no, we're not going to do it. And that's going to raise the ire of an awful lot of people, one way or another. And you're right. I mean, <laughs> given given what's happened with the arena situation, and we don't know what's, what's going to go down, happening down the road with that, uh, there's a lot more fodder here for people that are upset with this council. Yeah, there could be an accumulative effect. With LRT, they're almost up to $200 million in spending now, and they still don't know who's going to build it or what the price is going to be or haven't uh, presented the operating and maintenance agreement to the city. Uh, it boggles my mind that Metrolinx is spending money like that when there's so much uncertainty around the project. And, in fact, I... Uh, did a little story on it uh, in in this month's edition, and I directed that question to uh, Caroline Mulroney's office, the Minister of Transport, because I just don't understand how you can how you can be peeling off uh, two hundred million dollars. It's about one hundred and eighty, I guess, uh, but it's creeping upwards, and uh, uh, with so much uncertainty. I mean, imagine there isn't a tender uh, in on the project. We don't have a, a successful bidder. Um, there's still a, a, a milestone of council that has to be gone by. And yet here they are. They're, it's almost like Metrolinx is uh, operating on its own with no regard to the ministry. And uh, I, I think there needs to be some questions asked about that. Well, in light of that information that you just gave us, maybe we will still be in this situation by 2022 uh, with nothing yeah, really substantive know, done. Yeah, a constant drip. Well, and therein lies the problem. And I've heard, and I, I don't know if you've received the same information because you've got your ear to the ground around City Hall a lot of the time, uh, that there are some people on council right now that are having some second thoughts because they've heard some of the stories about uh, the, the implementation of LRT in Ottawa. And apparently there were more than a few bumps in the road with that situation. And uh, there's some concern here that, gee, are we going to go through that here? Well, I'm sure they're concerned, but the problem is to, to affect any kind of uh, action that takes political courage and, uh, you know, we, we've got council, uh, um, in, in some cases, you, you have to look at the entire council because there, there are the people who sort of are in the, you know, behind the scenes, this, this little cabal that seems to be kind of running our city, uh, a minority of council. But then on the other hand, we've got a majority of council that won't challenge them. So at the end of the day, you have to lump them all together. Uh, we were at Calgary last week for the festivities. It was two weeks ago, I guess, now talking to some Hamiltonians at our hotel uh, in anticipation of the Great Cup, which is going to be here, of course, in, in, t- in t- a couple of years. And uh, looking forward to that. And uh, one of them asked me, quite frankly, they said, look at the, the festivities. It's not just the game, of course. It's, it's a week-long festival, uh, which we assume is going to be in the downtown core. And he says, is there going to be a great big hole in the middle of the downtown through this? And I said, probably uh, which is going to put a, a, a bit of a, a black cloud, I would think, under the Great Cup festivities. If in fact they're they're going to be going on coincidentally construction of an LRT when we're trying to attract Canada to come to Hamilton for a festival like that. It'll be a construction site. There's no question. If if indeed the project uh, finally does go through. Well, uh, so no shortage of controversy, I guess, for these councillors going forward. And uh, we'll certainly be talking about it as the next one crop up. And it's not a matter of if it's going to happen, I guess, John. It's when. Probably. 
As always, thanks so much for this, John. Great talking with you. My pleasure, Bill. John Best from the Bay Observer. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.